iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? There is so much value in being able to move the stage of disease treatment from late to early. So much value in being able to prevent things instead of treating them. Genetics as well as other data from our bodies is such a high signal that I can't imagine it not being used. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a bit of a different show for you this week. So a little while ago, I sat down with Othman Laraki, who is the founder of Color Genomics which is one of a new generation of these direct-to-consumer genomics companies who are promising to really usher in a new era of medicine. And it's an era that has been coming for a very long time. It was, after all, back in 2000 that President Bill Clinton, looking fresh-faced and well-fed, had announced to much fanfare the completion of the Human Genome Project. Nearly two centuries ago, in this room, on this floor, Thomas Jefferson and a trusted aide spread out a magnificent map, a map Jefferson had long prayed he would get to see in his lifetime. The aide was Meriwether Lewis, and the map was the product of his courageous expedition across the American frontier all the way to the Pacific. It was a map that defined the contours and forever expanded the frontiers of our continent and our imagination. Today, the world is joining us here in the East Room to behold a map of even greater significance. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. Of course, there have been huge advances on the back of that breakthrough 18 years ago. But the predicted blossoming of a brave new world of preventative medicines where everyday people like you and me could discover what secret ailments may be lurking inside their bodies and then heading them off at the pass, that future has not really materialized. But that is what companies like Color are finally trying to do. Now, Laraki is not a doctor. He's a software engineer who previously worked at Twitter and Google. But due to some personal and family circumstances, uh, which you'll hear about, uh, he became very interested in this field, and he managed to raise $150 million in venture capital. And what he has created is a test. So for 250 bucks, you spit in a tube, you send it off in the post, and very soon after that, you can find out 
if you carry any number of genes that predispose you to various types of cancers or other serious health conditions. And if you get some bad news, then they have genetic counselors who help you process what you've just heard. And this, Laraki reckons, is the future of medicine. Now, obviously finding out if you are a carrier of a potentially fatal gene that could detonate at any moment is not a trivial matter. And in fact, after our conversation, Laraki offered me a free test. And to be honest, I was not sure if I wanted to take it. Like just about everyone, cancer has hit my family, especially my extended family, quite hard. So um, I was obviously very interested and intrigued by this idea. So I reached out to a doctor friend of mine who put me in touch with a geneticist friend of his who put me in touch with one of the best people possible, really, to speak with about the good, the bad, and ugly of this type of genetic testing. So I spoke with Ellen Matloff, who was the director of cancer genetic counseling at Yale for 18 years, and now she has her own gene counseling company. And so after I spoke with Laraki, I spoke with her. And if you want to hear that independent kind of third-party discussion about all the potential issues and also the potential benefits that comes from doing something like this, stick around for that conversation with her, which is right after I speak with Othman. I think you'll find it reassuring, a little bit disconcerting, and totally frightening all at once. But before we get there, let's hear what Laraki has to say. So here he is. So we launched a few years ago and got a lot of attention because we took what used to be these extremely expensive clinical tests, for example, being tested for cancer risk, like the BRCA1 gene, etc., that normally cost thousands of dollars, but put them on the market at $250, so more than order of magnitude less, but also surrounded it in a product that includes digital services to help people understand the information and follow up with their, with their physician, etc., and so that's kind of how we started. And, you know, initially we're very focused on cancer and we recently expanded to cardiovascular health. And so effectively it's for a couple hundred bucks, you can take a test. Does that give you the whole kind of breadth of, according to your DNA, you are predisposed to all of these things? Is that the idea? Yeah. And what we do is we don't try to do kind of a broad sweep, uh, but rather we are, you know, like what I call depth first, where we focus on areas that are where that are really important and that have a big impact. Uh, that's why, for example, initially we're all focused on cancer. So we initially were covering breast and ovarian cancer, and then we expanded to the other big hereditary cancers, so colon, prostate, pancreatic, etc. And the way it works is that yeah, so you get a genetic test. What that really does is it's it helps each person understand their risk using the genetics plus their family history, where their risks are. And that's what can be used to you know, optimize how you think about prevention in the long run. Um, all of us have cancer risk, right, or heart disease risk. A lot of things go into affecting that risk level and what we should do about it. And so what we do is we use genetics as a way to kind of calibrate that, but also incorporating lifestyle, family history to create a customized screening guidelines for each person that they can share with their physician based on nationally recognized guidelines, but that they can follow up on from there. So you guys obviously aren't the only ones that are looking at doing stuff like this. There's lots of companies that are raising tons of money to mm -hmm. do this kind of new wave of preventative medicine. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is interesting, because I've thought about this before, is like, I don't know if I want to know what I'm at risk for. Yeah. for. <laughs> Could you talk about the role of uh, like genetic counselors and what sure. that looks like? Because I imagine yeah. 
you get your test results back, I mean, it could be quite scary and, you know, yeah. life-altering potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, so, you know, to your point, so we include, with every color test, there's uh, genetic counseling is included as part of the test. And so we have board-certified genetic counselors that get on the phone with each person and talk, talk them through the results. The broader context in terms of also the, the, the point that you raised, like, you know, do you want to find out, right? So actually, I can even also talk about my, my own personal experience and, you know, one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why I'm working on, uh, on this and why we started the company was, so I'm actually a BRCA2 carrier myself, so it's one of these genes that predispose people to increase their risk for, for cancer. So you have that gene? Yeah. So does that mean you have a, instead of average person has X percent, you have 75% likelihood? I mean, what is... Yeah, what is it's a, so for example, with BRCA2 for men, what it does is that increases risk for prostate cancer. It increases risk for male breast cancer. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that men can also get breast cancer. And then a few, few other ones like melanoma, for example. And the side effect of that is that it changes both from a kind of choices I make from a lifestyle, but also in terms of screening. So for example, for skin cancer, I'm relatively tan, so I normally would not worry about skin cancer, but knowing this, A, it increases my vigilance, but also I see a dermatologist every year, and you know to check in places that normally are not sun exposed. So for example, a normal person would be extremely unlikely to get skin cancer between their toes, but I should check for that. You know, for male breast cancer, it's another interesting example there where, you know, usually men notice that they have something earlier than women because, you know, you have less breast tissue, so you'll tend to notice it but they tend to ignore it. It'll be months before they actually go to see a doctor. Whereas if you know that you have a mutation, if you react quickly, you have a much higher chance to be able to treat it successfully. One kind of general statistic that's, you know, that kind of also helps get a sense of the impact of this information is, you know, if you look at the distribution of when cancers are detected, right? So, you know, stage one, all the way to stage four, et cetera, every stage that you move a cancer detection earlier, you roughly double survival rate and you take out 30% of the cost of cancer. So that's a massive impact, right? Like that's a bigger impact than, you know, almost any therapy that's ever been invented in, in the history of cancer. And so having this information, it not only enables people to make the prevention changes that they can to just reduce the odds, but also it gives them a much higher chance to catch them earlier, which depending on the cancer can make a huge difference. There are some cancers like ovarian cancer, for example, which tend to be very deadly because it's an internal organ, tends to be get, get caught very late. But for women who know that they're at very high risk, they can either altogether prevent them through surgery or are able to catch them much earlier, which gives them much higher odds of, of actually uh, surviving them. And you mentioned earlier, Bob, you have board-certified genetic counselors. Is that a new job, genetic counseling? You know, it's been around for a while. The, What's a while? Like, I don't know, so, 10, 20 years? Or is, yeah, in, on, on that order, that's right. kind of where it's been kind of growing. Initially, it was um, actually... Kind of the two big areas where genetic counseling had been existing before had been in the, um, so cancer, as well as related to uh, pregnancy. So like cystic fibrosis, et cetera. So those had been kind of the two big buckets. But historically, just because genetic sequencing had been so incredibly expensive, right? Like, you know, the first human genome was sequenced about 20 years ago and cost $3 billion. And that cost has been going down exponentially. And what's been happening at the same time is that the volume has been ramping up in the reverse of that. But the availability of genetic counselors has not increased anywhere close to that uh, rate. Sometimes, literally, it will take longer to be able to get scheduled for a genetic counseling session at a doctor's office than to be able to see the doctor because of the scarcity. I think there are about 5,000 genetic counselors in the U.S. And one of the things that we've done that early on that 
has had a really big impact there is that we built a lot of software tools that enable genetic counselors to be much more efficient with their time. I'll just use my own story. So when I initially got tested, I got tested at Stanford about 10 years ago. It took, first of all, like four doctor visits going in person there to get tested. So first I went to see the doctor who then gave me a referral to a genetic counselor who then took all my information, had submitted to insurance, wait for a few weeks to see if insurance would cover it. Then I had to come back, get a blood draw, and then I had to come back for my results. Meanwhile, so, you're just thinking about what may or may not. Yeah, and this entire, I mean, this yeah. was months of, you know, overhead. And, you know, I was lucky to have a job where, you know, I could take time off, et cetera. But sometimes something people ignore or, or don't, don't realize around, also in terms of access for different income levels with genetics is, and health in general, is that there's a cost side, but then there's also a convenience side. Like being able to go in person five times in a few months, like it's, you know, if you're a parent and have two jobs working by the hour, like that's completely infeasible, right? Our goal is to make it possible to take all of this process while maintaining the quality and the amount of kind of care and the quality of information people are getting, but take as much of that online, kind of using almost like the telemedicine mindset so that, you know, you can have all those interactions from home, never needing to kind of go in person to, to do anything. So, you, you know, you get the kid at home, you get on the phone with the genetic counselor. We took away all the work that you do around insurance, et cetera. So really simplified the process, which, is, which has had a very big impact in terms of who can access it, like diversity of income levels and geographies, et cetera. If we step out of the States for a second and look at, you know, UK or the rest of Europe or most Western societies, they have socialized medicine state mm-hmm. where, you know, the state yeah. pays. In the UK, for example, they have this body called NICE where mm-hmm. any new treatment must pass some pretty rigorous value for money yeah. and as well as health efficacy mm-hmm. guidelines. I mean, does this fit that yet? Or have you done that work to actually say, look, if if everybody does this, if this becomes like going to the dentist yeah. once yeah. a year or whatever, <laughs> then this does save you money over the long term. Yeah, no, this, it's really interesting. Uh, there have been some stu- a number of studies both in the U.S. as well as other countries in the UK, I mean, there was a really interesting one that uh, was published by um, a researcher at the NHS, Ranjit Manachandran, in December, that was exactly around that question is like, you know, at what point does it become economically profitable, both both from the financial side, but also from an outcome standpoint, to do kind of population genetics? And what they found was, and actually they used colors price points, so it's 175 pounds and it's $250 to run all these calculations. And it turns out that, you know, it is higher ROI to do this than even things that we think of as standard, like pap smears and mammograms. The reason for that is, again, because it has such a substantial impact on the stage of detection. If you look at a late-stage cancer, like, you know, ovarian cancer, it's like, you know, 500K, a million dollars to treat. Early stage will be twenty-five to $50,000. So it's massive swing in cost. And so, you know, every person that you're able to pull in, not only do they a, themselves have a much higher chance of surviving, but it's a very big difference in cost of the system. You know, for example, the study in the UK was exactly around the point that you raise. And, and right now, I mean, everything is pointing in that direction. I mean, the, the ability to access this information has become, you know, almost trivial, but the signal is so high and the impact is so high, not just in terms of knowledge of how to invest screening and prevention resources, but also, I think, in its impact in engaging people. Half of the battle in health is changing people's behaviors. And to that point, what is your privacy policy? Mm-hmm. In other words, so I do my test, it comes back, I'm like, oh, I'm, a, I'm at risk. 
yeah. for high cholesterol, for yeah. example, and all of a sudden I start getting spammed with Lipitor ads or something. Does that happen? <laughs> no, that, that does not happen. That definitely does not happen. So we have a very kind of stringent privacy policy, and we take privacy and and security of the data is very, very seriously. And it's, you know, we view it as kind of like truly kind of an existential core to our existence and the reason reason why we exist. And, and our approach to data has been in some ways relatively simple at some level, which is it's founded on kind of two basic principles. Like the first one is we believe that the data is yours. It's your genome. It's your data. So, the, so a lot of the work that we do really try to steer it towards giving each person control over that information. You know, usually people think of that as being locking down the information as much as possible. But I think actually in health, there's also a side effect of information, a cost to information not being accessible for the people whose information it is. Like, you know, when you go to a new doctor, you might have an allergy to a medication or a condition that is sitting in another hospital you go to a new doctor and they give you a wrong prescription and you know you can you can die of it but like that is also a problem that is i think linked to this kind of you know how do you treat information and so for us you know we really try to put the person in control so the data is the individuals by default the only person that gets access to it is the physician who ordered the test for them. So because every color test is physician ordered. Oh, so um, I can't just go online and order it. So you can go online and order it. You either have to have your own doctor, like a doctor that you're a GP or, or et cetera, that you work with that is the primary doctor for it. Um, if you don't have a doctor, we work with third-party networks. We can help connect you with a doctor that will do the order. And, and we make that very simple and easy for people. But we think it's very important to have a doctor in the loop and as part of the you know uh, ordering process. That's it, that's you and the doctor has access to that information, doesn't go into like some EMR, doesn't go into anything else. However, we think it's also important for you to be able to conveniently share it with other doctors, to be able to share it with your family members, for example. Like, you know, if you discover you have a mutation, it means that every single family, every direct family member has a 50% chance of having that same mutation. So it's very important for them to get tested as well. In the normal course, you know, a lot of people find out they have mutations and just because of the overhead, their family members don't get end up being tested. And so we have this family testing program that makes it very simple and convenient for that to happen. And that's, I think, you know, an example of a case where people might really want to have that data shared. You know, how do you tell someone in your family, it's like, you know, your parents or siblings, like, hey, you know, I got tested by color. I have something that needs to be checked, like, you know, you should get you should get tested. Here's a discount for it. Just go and get tested. It's very important. And so we do a lot of work to make that possible. You know, we put people in control. It's their data. And we want to enable them to keep it as close as, as they like, but also enable them to also communicate with other people that are involved in their health uh, as well. So how do you make money? Yeah, so we, we make money uh, by selling our tests. There's also a subscription model where, that we have where because the each health area keeps evolving, people can also not only just get the test, but also kind of, for example, if you're using our cancer area, you can have this subscription that basically keeps updating it every few months, et cetera. So that's, that's one side. The other big area of work that we do is we work with large self-insured employers where they, they're what's called self-insured, whereas it means that they pay for the health care of all their employees. And you know about half of people in the US are insured through their employer. For these companies, you know, they want their employees to be healthier, but they also are covering the cost of, of care. And so we work with these employers to make color available to their entire employee base. 
So we have these programs where a company like SAP, every employee has access to color, sometimes for free, sometimes with a sm- for a small copay. And that enables like, you know, a very large part of the population to, you know, have access conveniently and simply. Uh, so you're not like selling like data to industry or research no. organizations? or oh, okay. We do work with researchers who are doing like big studies, but those are kind of in the context of the study and people are enrolled, you know, with specific study consent, et cetera. So two examples of those, you know, we're doing, we're working with the University of California system, UCSF, UCLA, et cetera, on a 100,000 women study across all of California and the Midwest around breast cancer uh, screening. So how do you manage breast cancer risk for an entire population if you know that they've already been tested? For example, another large one um, called the Gentleman Study. It's around metastatic prostate cancer uh, in the state of Washington where... Uh, it's called the Gentleman Study? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, researchers have, uh, always have these kind of really funny... <laughs> it actually stands for something. Like, there's like a whole... Oh, kind of, okay. There, there's just, always kind of like... But there, yeah. you know, scientists always love to come up with these like really funny... Act- yeah, this know, makes me think of like a pipe-smoking yeah, no, guy in a uh, tweed jacket. It, it's kind of funny. They, you know, there's always kind of these, uh, you know, uh, acronyms that people bring, you know, to events. But <laughs> but it's a, it's a really, I think, important, interesting study because... It turns out that, you know, if you look at metastatic prostate cancer patients, somewhere between 10, 10 to 15% of them are carriers of a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. And it turns out if you know that, the course of treatment would be very different for those people. Like the types of therapies they'd be on would actually not be the standard. And also the, the follow-on, et cetera, that you'd have for a normal prostate cancer patient. So these are some examples, but where people are enrolled into these studies and, you know, they know that they're part of the study, right. et cetera. How old is this company? Is it 2013? Yeah. So So how did this come to being? Obviously, I was late because I went to, I think, two or three different buildings before I got to the right one. But you guys are spread out all over and you're obviously growing quite rapidly. But how did this all start? So my personal background was, uh, you know, my before color, I was um, in tech. uh, In the Twitter. uh, Yeah. So I used to be (laughs) vice president of product at Twitter. And before that, I... Started a company, and before that, I, I was at uh, I was at Google as an early product manager there. Worked on a number of kind of products there, but had been kind of in the kind of internet software world for my for my entire career. I think one of the big, in some ways, a few different threads that kind of happened to coincide. But you know, initially driven by my personal and family story, like I had gotten a lot of interest in genetics and how it connects to to disease and. So my grandmother passed away from breast cancer. My mother survived two of them. And it's not oh until her second right. one that, you know, we discover that, you know, she got tested. And that's how she found it. That right. meant I had a 50% chance. So I got tested and I, you know, and I, you know, got the wrong side of the coin flip. And there, you know, it's, it was where it's personal. It's like, you know, that information, had she had it, for example, earlier in her life, you know, it made a massive difference, right? Yeah. She, she was lucky to survive both of them, but, you know, it came at a high cost. But then the kind of convergence was around realizing that the cost of sequencing was dropping at this incredible rate. And by default, I think people are still thinking of genetics as this thing that's like really hard and really expensive and et cetera. And that they felt that there was a really big opportunity to kind of bit rethink how you think about access and the entire cost structure. It's almost like, a, you know, so two days ago, the Falcon Heavy launched with SpaceX. And it was a few years ago, you know, when you looked at space, uh, you know, launches, you know, you assumed that it had to be hundreds of millions of dollars and done by these you know, massive companies, et cetera. Massive governments. And, and governments, yeah, exactly. Yeah, There's yeah. only governments who could do these things. And I think with Genexus, it was kind of similar where, for example, if you look at SpaceX, I mean, there's like a lot of amazing things that came into that, but like a big part of it is also relying on a completely new technology stack, right? Like they're literally, you know, putting, you know, 
consumer PCs into their rockets. But turns out it's like that technology is kind of, you know, enabled the completely different way to think about how you build right. something that's robust, et cetera. And, and, but, and, we, but, and also from since the beginning, since the sequencing of the genome, yeah. it's all been a bit disappointing, hasn't it? In other words, like it was like this happened, it was $3 billion, it yeah. took, you know, a decade or yeah. 13 years, whatever it was. And it was like the new era of medicine has arrived, right, yeah. <laughs> and all we got was twenty three and me. Yeah, this is something I feel like has uh, tends to happen a lot with new technologies. Where when a new kind of building block shows up, I think oftentimes the first wave of applications tend to be kind of first order ideas of that technology, right? And it's often until the second cycle that you get all these like much deeper system level changes like in many ways like with PCs right like a lot of the early users were you know for gaming or for you know one interesting example for me is like with with mapping right like so when phones started supporting GPS locations you know the first wave of applications were check-in apps you know everyone's like okay you know it's like you know okay now we have GPS I can everyone can check in and that wasn't that interesting but then a few years later you got Uber people don't think of Uber as a geo app but like geo is a fundamental building block for something like Uber. And I think it's kind of like that for things like this, where it's a, a building block that initially we think of as a, in a first order way. And we also initially have access to, but at a very high cost structure. So you think of it only in the kind of these like very rarefied applications, right? Like only for people who have late stage cancer, do you go and sequence a tumor, right? Whereas when the cost structure changes, and I think when you start thinking of that technology as something that's part of the environment, I think it creates like these second order opportunities. I mean, that's why also with color, we don't think of ourselves as a as a genetics company. We think of our job as prevention and early detection of major diseases. And so really our goal is to move that risk curve and the cost curve of care for large populations. And I think that's possible with, in part, thanks to this like new building block. Because like all of prevention today, right, is designed, assuming if you show up, I have no idea about your risk. My best guess is to fit you to a bell curve. You're probably part of this population bell curve. But then if you actually have someone's genetics, you can be like, oh no, you know, I actually know for sure that this person is shifted, you know, this way or that way. And you can start reasoning about populations and about specific, you know, profiles in a very different way, which then allows you to use very different tools. Like, so for example, you know, it's completely not worthwhile either from an outcomes or from a cost standpoint to go and do a mammography for every woman in her 30s, right, at, yeah. at 32. But if a woman is a, has a BRCA1 mutation and has 80% risk of breast cancer, that mammography is some of the best dollar you can spend in healthcare, right? Yeah. Um, and but so to that's be dystopic for a second. <laughs> You're the dystopic <laughs> yeah, <character. laughs> no. Insurance companies, yeah. they obviously would love this information. And you could very easily see, depending on how healthcare ends up, this is something that can be used to disqualify people from care or jack up their premiums mm-hmm. way high just because you know that your chances are greater yeah. than the next person. First of all, there's a, there's a law called GINA that prohibits the discrimination based on genetics for health insurance and employment. That's illegal. It does not extend to life insurance currently. It's something where there is a dis- in some ways, like a dystopic risk of that And is that happening. a debate in the industry right yeah, now? Yeah, it, it, it is very much so. And it, and it kind of goes in cycles. It goes and it comes back. But I think in, the, in practice today, you know, it hasn't been a big issue that we've seen. 
But it's something I think that's very important. And I think it's going to be, as, that inf- as this information becomes more and more available, et cetera, that, to ensure that it gets used in the right way. And I think a big part of that is having a very clear understanding of who owns this information, what are their rights around it, et cetera. And, so, and I think GINA is a very good baseline for that. And when, was that when was that passed? It was passed under uh, President Obama. So oh, okay. um, I can't remember the exact date for it. Uh, 2008. And so I think it's a very important law. You know, it's very important that, you know, gets extended to to be even broader than it is today. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So back in the real world, away from the dystopia, <laughs> I mean, what actually convinced you to leave Twitter and to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, one phrase I sometimes like to say is like, you know, some of the most important missions in life are not ones that you choose, but ones that choose you. In some ways, for me, this was like, you know, one of these cases where, you know, there's a very personal connection to this and just seeing firsthand how important this information can be and how negatively impactful it can be if someone doesn't have access to it. Combined with kind of the fact that when, you know, the cost of genetics, you know, completely changed, I think genetics itself has become much more of a software and data problem than a hard chemistry problem. That's where I felt like, you know, you know, that's one of the things with color. I mean, we've assembled this amazing team of, you know, really deep kind of software engineering, you know, people who've, you know, worked on some of the largest infrastructure systems in the world, et cetera, and using kind of all of that to be able to understand this information better and also using kind of the consumer work that we've done to make that information accessible and help people kind of, you know, just make those changes that are important. It's a combination of something that, you know, I personally cared a lot about, but also where it felt that the things that we could assemble a team for, my co-founders and I could have a very big impact on the industry. So it felt, you know, it was something that felt important and also something that we felt we could make a big difference around. And so you quit in 2013 and then you go out to Sand Hill Road and try to raise money? Um, actually, initially, my one of my co-founders, Alad, and I um, funded the company ourselves. We were still so unsure that about the how difficult it was going to be and, you know, the opportunity, et cetera, like whether there was, you know, we felt that was something that was important that, you know, we could do something about, but didn't have much of a business model at the time. So we just did it ourselves and then did a Series A later with uh, with real investors. So how long were you uh, running on your own before you... I think about a year. What allowed you to actually raise the, the outside money? 
A few things. I think one is that we demonstrated that we could actually do what we thought we could because, you know, initially we were like, you know, hey, we think we can shave off a zero off the cost of this stuff. <laughs> and we had a hypothesis that, you know, you, you could do that. But it, you know, still on a, just a hypothesis stage at that point. So really going through a lot of that hard work to do that. You know, second other big thing is that we also involved with the company, some of the top people from the gen- genetics and health space that also really ensured that, you know, we were not just people from the software industry, you know, not knowing what they were doing, but really kind of getting a lot of that depth on the genetics scientific side. And so my co-founder, Alad, has a PhD in genetics. And, you know, we started working with Dr. Mary Claire King, who's, you know, discovered the BRCA1 gene and a number of other scientists. And that kind of, I think that combination, I think made it clear that, A, technically we could pull it off. But then secondly, that there was a a clear way to make this accessible to people at scale. And I think that, you know, really is kind of where it becomes interesting and an opportunity, I think, to, you know, do a lot of good, have a big impact, but also, you know, to be able to build a business that is self-sustaining and and growing. Because effectively, you're trying to productize genomics. In some ways, also unproductize it, actually, because I don't think genetics is a product. I don't think a normal person actually cares about their genetics. I think what people care about is, you know, not dying of cancer, not dying of heart attack, their family to be healthy. And I think of genetics as a building block. It's almost like, you know, with Google, Google runs the biggest data centers in the world, but you don't think of Google as a data center company. With genetics, it's kind of like that. It's a building block. I think right now people think about genetics as a product because it's novel, et cetera. But I think over time, it's going to be this super important thing under the hood, but it's going to power things that are like, I think, very significant. Genetics is not a product in my mind. I think genetics is a building block for potentially very important products. Do you think this will just fundamentally change the way healthcare is delivered and treated? Actually, the UK, I think, is very ahead of a lot of other countries, definitely the US. In what sense? In the sense of, like, the point you raised earlier about kind of establishing the population ROI for using genetics at true scale. The US is super fragmented, so it's kind of, it takes a long time for things to kind of, you know, go into standard practice, but I think with the NHS, et cetera, even though it's, you know, it's big, it's slow in the kind of absolute scale, yeah. but it's it still actually is able to move in a way that's kind of with one it's, mind. It's uniform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if you take a step back and don't think about genetics or anything, if I told you I have this like magic crystal ball that can tell you if you are at high risk for different things that you can do something about, and you can use this crystal ball to be able to choose how you're going to invest, you or the government, or is it going to invest in doing the things that will help you stay healthy and build the tools that allow you to, to do the following, et cetera. I think the, the default answer is yes, especially in, when it's a case where it's not like a fatalistic thing. It's actually, okay, you know, the same reason we don't drive down the road with our eyes closed, like you can get information that can really inform how you make your choices and how you invest your effort and, and money. I think it's one of those things that just makes so much sense <laughs> yeah. uh, that can't imagine it not being kind of the way we manage healthcare in the future. There is so much value in being able to move the stage of disease treatment from late to early, so much value in being able to prevent things instead of treating them. Genetics, as well as other data from our bodies, is such a high signal that I can't imagine it not being used. It feels like that's absolutely where you know the world has has to go. And it's almost like I don't think we would have a choice. The cost of healthcare is so high, you know, the burden of these diseases is so high that I can't think of another alternative, right? It's like there isn't enough money in the world to treat all the late stage diseases. So it feels like it's one of those things. It's almost like, uh, you know, it will happen one way or the other. And, you know, I think it's a question of what's the most equitable and effective and 
transparent and high impact way it can happen. We've gone from whatever it was, three billion, down to Illumina is talking about the hundred dollar genome. Uh-huh. Are we looking at like five bucks and I don't know, twenty years? to kind of know all this kind of the secrets in your body? You know, I, I don't know if it ever gets to that like $5 range because at some point it crosses where there's enough ROI that it makes it worthwhile to have access. And, you know, with massive scale, you'll still kind of shave off some of the cost. But in the same way that, you know, a phone will never be $5, even no matter how much you scale it. I think there'll still be, you know, a basic cost to, you know, processing samples and doing it with high quality, et cetera. But I think what it does is that it crosses into this territory where it's less expensive than the paperwork that it takes to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so and I think it's when you cross that, it's like that's where it becomes, I think, the type of thing that becomes, you know, incredibly accessible. And are you a coder by training? Yeah. yeah oh, okay. As a, I'm an engineer by, by training. And right. Unfortunately, these days, I don't get to, to program that much. I, I used to, uh, even at Color, I actually uh, wrote a lot of the early code and... Uh, but was smart enough to hire much better engineers than me who just right. you know, over time have gotten rid of all the uh, <laughs> of all my bad designs and right, made much right, better right. ones. Um, I know we're running short of time, so I'll, I'll let you go. But just back on that point, you talked about like you get the test and you will have results. And some things I imagine you can, you know, you can change your diet, you can exercise more, you can do whatever. But there's got to be some things where there's nothing you can do. Yeah, um, you know, there are definitely diseases where, you know, they're genetically based, where currently there are no, there's no treatment, et cetera. Yeah. So for like BRCA, is yeah. there, can you change your life to kind of... Yeah, so, so in fact, actually, for, for cancers, it depends a bit on the different type of cancer, but actually that was one of the reasons why we chose an issue to focus on cancer is that it's a big disease, obviously. The genetics are very important, but it's also quite actionable for a woman who has a high risk of breast cancer. like So, you know, a woman with a BRCA1 mutation can have like 81% and above risk of breast cancer, up from about 12% for an average. But it turns out that screening at the right time, because she starts being at risk in her mid-20s instead of mid-40s, you completely change when she's likely to get it, to catch, to catch it. But then also, you know, women can choose to have preventative surgeries, like the Angelina Jolie yeah. example a few years ago where, you know, it's obviously a big decision, et cetera. Quite controversial. has a huge impact. You know, it's a personal choice, right? Like, yeah. it's not one that, you know, you can presume, you know, that what I can, you know, I can presume is a right or wrong for someone. But if someone is like, you know, sees 80% risk and can drop it down to under a percent, that is action. It's an action with high cost, but it's action. The thing that's very encouraging that I'm really excited about is that now that, you know, these women with early breast cancers, they just look like unlucky. You know, just had a lot of random people that are unlucky, yeah. right? Or that have a heart attack at the age of 40, et cetera. But when you know, if someone knows that they have a mutation, like all of a sudden you created a market, like you create a population that you can serve. So you're starting to see, for example, high-risk cancer centers that are popping up in major hospitals. You're starting to see drug therapies that are targeted at these mutations, right? So when you create a market, then you can have products that serve that market. I think that's how you start being able to altogether, you know, actually prevent these diseases, but without, you know, you know, these massive interventions, et cetera. So what do you think? Are you ready to spit in a tube and see what your body may or may not have in store for you? Like I said, Color offered me the opportunity and I was on the fence. So I brought in an expert to talk it through. And I already mentioned her at the top of the show, but I will let her introduce herself properly. My name is Ellen Matloff and I'm a certified genetic counselor and the president and CEO of MyGeneCounsel. I was the director of cancer genetic counseling at Yale for 18 years. Now, my question for Matloff 
was basic. Is ignorance bliss? In other words, do I really want to know? Genetic testing can be heavy stuff, but I would say finding out you're at high risk to develop a condition is not as heavy as finding out you already have the condition. Whether or not you find out whether or not you have a hereditary cancer mutation, it doesn't change whether or not it's actually in your DNA. And that's something I always talk to patients about, right? They would come in with a strong family history of cancer and kind of be scared to move forward. And we would discuss that you either do or you do not carry this finding right now. The only thing we're deciding is whether or not you want to know about it. Having for 18 years been seeing patients and sitting down with many people who had been diagnosed oftentimes with late stage colon cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, oftentimes what they would say is, I just wish I'd known a little bit sooner. I would have had that colonoscopy. I would have had a mammogram. I would have had my ovaries removed if I'd known I was at high risk. Okay, so argument in favor. But of course, it's not that simple. One of the interesting choices that Color has made was to be selective about the mutations it tests for. And there's a couple reasons for this. One, doling out death sentences is not really a good business model. And two, if you choose certain types of conditions, then there are things you can do to mitigate the likelihood of it turning into something fatal, be that a lifestyle choice or at the other extreme, having a preventative surgery like Angelina Jolie did. But this is, of course, far from a perfect process. I'll let Matloff explain. With these genetic tests for cancer, people can have the testing, learn if they're at increased risk. And we do know that in the high-risk families with personal and family histories of cancer, that there are recommendations and guidelines that help guide you about surveillance and things you can do for risk reduction, which may even include taking a medication or having a surgery to reduce your risk of developing cancer. What is less clear and what I think unfortunately is glossed over is what do you do if you have one of these tests and an important or seemingly important genetic change is found and you have no personal history and no family history of cancer, even though you have a lot of family and you know that there's no cancers present, that is less clear. I think it's a misnomer to think well, I'll have this test and bring it to my physician. And if it's baloney or if it's wrong, my physician will catch it. We've now been publishing since 2010 about misinterpretation and genetic testing. And unfortunately, it's common. And the physicians also misinterpret genetic test results. The results are complicated. Every company is doing different types of testing and it's different quality testing and a different breadth of testing. And we can't really expect these physicians to be able to interpret all of these tests as cleanly as a certified genetic counselor would be able to. On the market right now, we have everything from really, really good tests to really almost useless tests. So not only are there useless tests, there are also misinterpreted results, which means that there are some people walking around right now who have been gifted a false sense of security while others may have been inspired to take some pretty dramatic and serious action based on a result that was perhaps far less conclusive than they thought. 
In other words, there's a bit of a Wild West air to this world of direct-to-consumer genetics. And be that as it may, it's here to stay, it seems. I wouldn't say that direct-to-consumer genetics is the future. I would say it's the present. There are more than 14 million people have had genetic testing from one of these companies. And there are risks and benefits to doing the testing in this way. And there are limitations. But in terms of is this the future, it's already happening. And I really believe it's here to stay. Now, there's one other thing to keep in mind here. You'll recall that Laraki was talking about how closely color guards its customers' data. Not everyone is so cautious. If you haven't had genetic testing yet through perhaps not color, but perhaps an Ancestry.com or 23andMe, or you haven't had your raw data done and uploaded it to one of these sites, most likely one of your relatives has already done it. And it's probably a distant relative, maybe someone you don't even know. But most likely, if you uploaded your data to one of those sites right now, you'd get a hit, which means there's a family member already in the database. So I think we've already progressed past a point where really asking, you know, is this the wave of the future? It's, it's really already happened. The obvious question is, so what? What data could they possibly have? Could have a lot of data about you. Don't be surprised if someday you get an email from a company like Color or another genetic testing company or even a genetics clinic that you've never heard of before just letting you know that you're at risk for X because one of your relatives has had testing and they've put in the email addresses of all of their relatives, including yours. It's interesting and kind of scary. And again, I find myself as a genetic counselor seeing both sides of the coin because I can't tell you how many times I sat in a session with a patient and said, okay, we've determined that you have this hereditary cancer syndrome. And now what I need you to do is to notify your siblings and your cousins and your aunts and uncles. And people would say, yeah, I'm not close with my family. We haven't spoken in 10 years. They can figure it out on their own. You know, my position as a program director at the time, I would try to persuade them that if they didn't want to notify that relative, that maybe I could give them a letter that they could send to the relative. And... That was always my take, that even if I don't like the decision, it is the decision of the person sitting in front of me. But a lot of these companies are kind of taking it to the next step and saying, well, we want the email addresses of all of your relatives. We will let them know that they're at risk and we will sell our tests to them. And so imagine how you would feel knowing getting an email in your inbox and that email might have your name. In your email address, it might, it most likely has some identifying information that could be traced back to you. And you're opening up an email from a stranger who already knows your genetic risk status. Like I said, I told you this would be a bit frightening. But I had one last question. Should I, a healthy 41-year-old with cancer peppered throughout my extended family, take one of these tests? In my genetic counselor role, to be honest, what I'd really want to do is take a family history from you and draw out your pedigree, get the ages of diagnosis of your relatives and what types of cancer they had, figure out your risk for a hereditary cancer. And if you have a significant risk for a hereditary form of cancer, 
I would talk to you about your options and the pros and cons of using color versus other companies. I know that's not the yes or no answer you probably hoped for from me, but that's what I would do. I would really assess your family history first and then help steer you to the right test. Ask a simple question, get a very complex answer. I guess I shouldn't be surprised given the subject matter, but I have to admit, it's a bit disappointing. I blame Bill Clinton. He made it all sound so easy. With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives. And just so you know, I'm still on the fence about that test. I think I need another session with Matloff. And that is it for this week's show. We will be back next week. We might even have two pods. Who knows? Double trouble. You'll have to tune in to find out. I would like to thank Othman as well as Ellen for taking the time and answering all of my questions. I found it truly illuminating and fascinating. And I have one more request of you, dear listener. Please, if you like the show, stop into Apple Podcasts. Give a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show. Um, So please take a moment and do that. And in the meantime, you can find all my non-audio productions, also known as articles, the written word, in the Sunday Times newspaper, as well as online at thetimes.co.uk and on the Twitter as well. I'm there at Danny Fortson. You can also email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Until next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.